Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some free money. It's very easy to do. To download the Stitcher app, just go to Stitcher.com or the App Store. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, when it asks you, how did you hear about this app? Enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. That's all it takes. The latest episode of this show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content Always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at Stitcher.com or in the App Store free of charge. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer, you name it. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the entertainment option you have selected. This is a modest attempt at bridging the human divide. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. Great show for you today. At least uh, I think so. I'm going to be talking with Patrick Wensink in just a moment. Uh, He is, ladies and gentlemen, an author who has been contacted by fate in recent times. He is an author who has experienced a strange and exhilarating ride on a runaway tidal wave of publicity. It's the kind of thing that authors often dream about relative to book sales uh, in you know the authorly experience. It's the kind of thing that marketing executives and publicists will sit around trying to generate in strategy meetings in skyscrapers. And yet in this particular instance, in Patrick's instance, the one you're going to hear about uh, momentarily, it all happened quite by accident as it so often does. And uh, this particular tidal wave of publicity was unleashed indirectly at least by Uh, inferior knowledge of copyright law. And I say that not to denigrate. I say that just in point of fact. It is a happy story, a little whimsical, somewhat funny, and it makes me wonder if the energy that exists out there, whatever you want to call it, the force of nature that propels a book or any kind of artist or artwork into the public consciousness uh, writ large, uh, I wonder to myself 
Is this something that can be manufactured or does it require more than that? Is there some subtler uh, energy, some more powerful energy working in conjunction with human endeavor, some unpredictable and uh, almost magical force that is required in order for a book to explode? I have no idea. I can't tell you definitively, but Patrick's story does make me wonder. And so uh, let's hear about it, shall we? Let's hear about uh, Patrick, uh, a little bit about him. He lives in Kentucky. He is a stay-at-home dad in addition to being a writer. He has written books like Black Hole Blues and Sex Dungeon for Sale. And his latest novel, which is causing all of the aforementioned commotion, is called Broken Piano for President. It is now available from your good friends at Lazy Fascist Press. So here it is, folks. Here we go. My conversation with Mr. Patrick Wensink. About a week or two ago, I got, uh, I'll start way at the beginning, I got a cease and desist letter from the Jack Daniels Whiskey Company. Uh, and because the book cover for my latest book, Broken Piano for President, mimics the Jack Daniels label. And uh, we didn't realize we are hurting anybody's feelings or breaking any laws because we're not, you know, everybody who works in my press, the designers and the editors, we're all sort of art-brained people. We just assumed it's a parody. It's just like a Weird Al song. You know, it's okay. And uh, the book's about uh, a guy who's more productive when he's drunk than when he's sober. So it seemed like a really perfect match. And uh, the Jack Daniels people did not agree. So they, they sent me a cease and desist letter. And uh, it starts off very formal and lawyerly. And it kind of starts eventually, after you get two, two or three paragraphs into it, getting very polite and informal, where they start saying they're flattered by the fact that and we, we've used their icon, but, you know, don't do not do that. And then at the end, they actually offer to pay for new artwork to be done, which I, I don't get cease and desist letters, but that's I, that cannot happen very often. I mean, it was just stunning how uh, nice that was. <laughs> and so I talked to my – oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, did you take them up on it? Or are they going to pay for the redesign? I talked to my editor about it, and I talked – and he talked to the – my editor, Cameron Pierce at Lazy Fascist Press, and he talked to his uh, boss, who's our publisher, Rose O'Keefe, who runs Eraserhead Press, and uh, they, we all kind of talked, and we decided that, yes, absolutely, we'll change the, the cover art, because we didn't realize we were violating anything, and uh, but, but we decided we would not take the money, um, just because I think I think the law, I mean, we never really made a formal statement, but the, the logic is that we're we're lucky that they're being so nice to us as it is, and let's just count our blessings. And we can we can pay for more cover art. That's no problem. So let's just uh, let it be and get out of these guys' hair before we, you know, overstay our welcome. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> plus, like, uh, you know, you're going to make enough money from the book sales, I would imagine, to be able to cover some cover art. Let, let's hope, right? Yeah, but before all this, there was probably going to be a little dodgy. It wasn't uh, selling incredibly well. I mean, it's a small press book, and it's a, it's a very uh, – competitive market out there but so i said uh you know talked back to the lawyer and said you know said basically what i just said that we're we're sorry and uh we will you know once we get new artwork up together we'll change it and it'll be fine and they were very nice they said don't worry about don't you can't don't worry about pulling books from the shelves sell out this print run if, if it's print on demand they didn't but they didn't know but so basically just keep selling it until you have new artwork and then stop which is crazy like that's really nice of them they could have totally sunk lazy fascist press probably by telling us to take away all of our stock but they didn't and they were really nice about it yeah it's, it's, isn't it nice so, isn't it nice when like a behemoth company with lots of like uh, fancy lawyers and 
uh, money is is nice to somebody without a lot of money and fancy lawyers. That's always a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it was the exact opposite of what you would expect. You think they would take advantage of that uh, discrepancy, but they took a very human approach to it. And uh, I'm <laughs> I think I'm very lucky they didn't sue pants off of me or my publisher. So uh, I I then thought it was really interesting. I thought the, the, some people would find it interesting also to see this. So I just posted the cease and desist letter online just because I thought it was neat and people might find it interesting as well. And that was uh, last week sometime. And then Sunday, four or five days ago, Boing Boing, uh, this really pretty popular sort of news web, esoteric news website picked it up and it just spread through the internet after that. And then so far, the cease and desist letter has been in like the New York Times and Forbes and the New Yorker and Esquire and all these places that I've never, I never would have imagined in a million years my name would be in. So it just has complete, I've, I've uh, been on NPR and Yahoo News and it's just been and, unbelievable. And, how now, it, and now you are on other people. And now I'm on other people with Brad Listy. I, I've finally <laughs> arrived. <laughs> Uh, and people are just latching onto it. It's being called, you know, the world's most polite cease and desist letter, and the lawyer is being called the world's nicest lawyer. And I'm just sort of caught in the jet stream and following along, and it's been uh, very fortunate for me. That this is I got this threatened is with a lawsuit. It's absurd. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's I've never in a million years would have guessed something like a cease and desist letter would lead me to internet notoriety. <laughs> yeah, and well, and you know, like this is the thing about it, and and well, I mean, and let me ask you this: Has it really, in in a really substantive way, led to um, bigger book sales? Like, are you seeing insane numbers? Like, how many books have sold in the last four days? Do you have a number? Um, no, I think Amazon's a little. I don't understand Amazon. I don't have a math degree, so I don't understand how Amazon operates. But uh, it's. I mean, most um, we don't have hard numbers yet, but you can just see the rankings and you can sort of know um, that books are really moving. So for example, you know, say last week or two weeks ago, the book is, you know, probably in the mid hundreds of thousands, 500,000 most popular, which means you sell a book every couple days, maybe, or once a week, maybe I think it's kind of how it translates. And it's shot up to the sixth best selling at one point this week, it was the sixth best selling book in all of Amazon out of every book ever printed. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was ahead of like Oprah's Book Club book and The Hunger Games, and it was right behind like the Fifty Shades of Grey novels for most popular book on Amazon. So I don't know, I have no idea how many books that translates to. Definitely more than I've ever sold combined, all my three books combined, I'm assuming, but. I don't know how many that really translates to yet. I'll be interested. I'd love to know. I mean, like not uh, not to get too up. Into, <laughs> so would I. <laughs> yeah, not, not to get not to get uh, all up into your business, but more just to like because I feel like those Amazon rankings are so nebulous, and I feel like I want to say I read something once where it's like unless you're in the top one thousand, it's totally pointless. Like you know what I'm saying? Like the number of books that you're selling, like it's it's just a uh, there's a marginal difference. You know what I'm saying? Between yeah, it's like a book. A I've month heard something or, similar to that too. Yeah, because. Uh, the, the problem is my publisher, I mean, we're a small, Lazy Fascist is a small indie press, and they just never had anybody uh, move this far up the ranking. I think Eraserhead, sort of our parent company, had a book at one point in time that peaked at 100-something, and so they could kind of understand how many books that was, but they have no, we have no frame of reference here. So, yeah, we're we're figuring it out as we go along. 
Wow. And sales wise. And then is it available as an ebook too? Yep, absolutely. It's a uh, Kindle and um uh Nook available. So And that's actually selling well too. So it's really funny that that's that actually makes me feel better than the print sale. I mean, I'm really psyched about the print sales, but people buying the Kindle version means that the story sounds good to them. They're not just buying it because it's a, you know, an artifact and sort of a novelty. I think you wouldn't buy the Kindle book. Right. Oh, right. wanted to read it. Right. right, right. <laughs> Hopefully. I have no idea. Yeah, no. I mean, I, and I just, I mean, it, it's an absurd story, but it's also, it's like, a, <laughs> it's a happy story. I mean, it really is. When you think about trying to, all the different ways that publishers and writers pull their hair out trying to sell a book. Oh, yeah. And it just happened, yeah, I mean, uh, this happened by accident. Yeah, not to be... Not to be a, yeah, a douchebag or something, but I'm writing an article for the Huffington Post about all the ways that I failed at publicity and then, like, fe- you know, fell ass backwards into really great publicity. I mean, I've held Brooklyn Pianos about drinking, and so I've, I hold drinking games at my readings, and, I mean, I've done everything from, like, game shows and all these other things that I think are fun and people will love and help me sell books in, in the past, and they just never do. So it's just such a mystery what makes people interested in books. I still don't really know. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the thing. Is like, you know, I'm trying to think of something comparable in the past uh, where yeah. someone has taken off. And it's like, the the I think that the point that I'm, I'm driving at is that it's almost, uh, it's out of your control. It's just, I mean, obviously you, totally. po- you posted the thing on the internet, so you did something. But there's no way you could have possibly. <laughs> I did the least amount of work possible yeah. for all this, basically. How, how are you supposed to know? Yeah. How are you supposed to know it's going to become a meme? And like, it makes me think of, uh, you know, it makes me think of the push that Cheryl Strayed's book has gotten, which your book was competing with on the Amazon list. Uh, mm-hmm. that's yeah. The, but like she, you know, she did the Dear Sugar column over at the Rumpus, and um, right. it was it was hugely popular. But like that whole reveal where she kind of uh, came out of the closet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. That wasn't like I talked to her on this show about that. Like that wasn't premeditated, but yet it seemed like the most ingenious publicity move ever. Right? And it <laughs> yeah. just it just sort of happened, you know, is the way that she put it. And so I think sometimes these things just sort of happen, and it's almost like there's this third party energy that carries something. It's just you know, it's it's so it's so interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's totally unexplainable, and it's yeah, it's completely out of my hands. I mean, every it's been like a really bad movie with like a uh, montage scene. I mean, the last three or four days, I'll just turn on my computer and something ridiculous is going on where, oh my God, I'm in Forbes. Um, I have an email from morning or weekend edition. They want to interview me on NPR. It's just things that I never would have ever thought would happen in my life coming one after another. It's just really strange and great. I'm not complaining. So do you, I mean, like, okay, so let's try to get a, let's try to wrap our heads around this because, you know, there's... Okay, the- let's do the news cycle moves quickly in in the modern mm-hmm. in the modern. Oh yeah, I'll be totally forgotten next week. I understand that. <laughs> okay, I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say this is going to. By the time this airs, nobody will remember who I am. <laughs> so, is there any? And you seem to have a healthy relationship with that. I mean, like you're not like dreading the the eventual. Yeah. Thing. No, I mean, I I'm so fortunate to have gotten to this ridiculous point that all I can do is sort of smile about it and just be still shocked that I'm, you know, that it's happening. I mean, yeah, I can't be sad. I had a, I had a weird conversation with my editor where we were kind of laughing because he said, oh, the book dropped the 12th bestseller overall in, in the country. And we sort of paused for a second and we're like, what the hell is wrong with us? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, fantastic. Okay, so so wait, let's try to predict this too. Like, is Amazon? I mean, Amazon's Amazon rankings have to be a pretty good indicator for the New York Times list. Like, are you expecting it to be a New York Times bestseller? I, I have no clue what the New York Times uh, how how they, how they base that stuff. I, I, you know, somebody mentioned that to me, but I haven't even tried thinking about it because it just seems too far fetched. But I don't, I, yeah, I don't really know how they calculate all this stuff. I would love that if they're listening. I mean, yeah, right. You know, like what I was just what I was just thinking. Like this is, uh, I mean, this literally just flowered in my mind. I was imagining as we were talking about this that like there was some sort of software program similar to the kinds of software programs that they use to track uh, the stock market, and how hmm. how cool it would be if there was like a live real time tracking of book sales where you could like watch the <laughs> writers would get what writers would officially get nothing done at that point it would just be yeah yeah um, you're you're a writer i mean you know how addictive it is to check your amazon rankings no matter where they where your book is it's you know it's yeah if there was live that would be horrible i don't think i could ever leave my computer it's gotten more i mean it's gotten more uh it's gotten more um you know sophisticated in terms of how you can track like you can now with your amazon account or whatever can't you look at book scan and see like where the books are selling geographically and yeah, yeah, that updates like uh, once a week, I think. I think it updates tomorrow on Fridays, so I'm excited to see what that is. I mean, I'm just perplexed by all this, so I'm really curious to see where where people are buying it and who bought it and what. We'll see. Yeah, Amazon does a good job of telling you a little bit, more than what you think you would know. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature – I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so with the book of uh, with the book available uh, print on demand, I, does that mean that the book is not in uh, like the national chain bookstore? And I say that singularly. Um, it's, it's just they have to Nova. sort of. Yeah, they have. To, I think they kind of have to go. We have a distri- we have a distributor, um, Ingram Distribution, but. I don't know what bookstores it's in and what bookstores it's not. I know I have a relationship with um, the woman who kind of stocks the indie books at uh, one of the Barnes and Nobles in New York City, and I know they have it, but I don't know or country or across the country who has it and who doesn't have it. I mean, I don't understand that stuff. Right, <laughs> I well, leave yeah. all the hard thinking to other people. Right, right, right. So, but mostly people are buying it online. I, I guess is what I'm driving at. It's yeah, I think. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I didn't. I don't understand that. Yeah, yeah, mostly online. I, I've heard that Barnes and Noble online. It's in the top twenty-five of all their sellers, and Amazon is right now. I guess sort of just the, the litmus test for a lot of writers. I think so. That's what I've just been focusing on. 
Okay. So now have there been any discussions? Like, do you find yourself falling into some sort of strategic thinking? Like, what do I do next? How do I capitalize on this? Or are you just like hands off the reins and just like letting it happen? Um, if it was left up to me, I probably would have just sort of, yeah, put my hands in the air and let it, let it go. But uh, my editor, Cameron Pierce is really savvy. He's a real smart guy. So probably Monday or Tuesday after this thing started blowing up, he's like, okay, now we got to start thinking what next. And I think we're going to put out a collection of my nonfiction called, uh, everything was great until it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) We've been planning on, we've been planning, we're going to release it in the fall, a nonfiction collection, but I think we're going to bump up the the publication date to maybe late summer, early fall now to sort of have something else out there. Yeah. I mean, that's not a bad idea. And then like, what about, so, yeah, so, are you going to, yeah. you going to try to like, uh, incite any more like potentially like, uh, you know, congenial litigious behavior from other companies. And <laughs> I could never do this again in a million years. I mean, I, yeah, if I tried, I would totally fail. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. It's just like a beautiful accident. <laughs> Yeah. I think I'm just going to count my blessings and move on. I don't know what uh, how I would follow this up, but I guess I'll have to think of something. And then what about <laughs> like, what about the response from um, – let's start with the response from other writers because I have noticed because I track this stuff and you know I'm always paying attention to the literary web. Uh, there has been mm-hmm. like a really warm response from people in writing you know writers publishers whatever I, i've noticed on my facebook yeah page. people are people are excited about it and are sort of cheering for it it's a fun story to cheer for you know to see kind of an indie an indie press author get this sort of publicity ride is uh one in a you know i don't know one in ten thousand <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know the math yeah that's a really good point that tons of people have really yeah like posted on facebook or sent me emails or you know, people I don't have a, a either know vaguely just through the internet or don't know at all, and they're just saying, "Hey, that's, this is fantastic. Good for you. You know, good luck." And yeah, I think it's just I think if it was somebody else, I would think the same thing. That wow, this microscopically published book is you know making a huge dent in other books. You yeah. know, in, in the the Twilight uh, Hunger Games sort of market. <laughs> and then what about uh, what about this attorney and what about the people at Jack Daniels? Like, has there been anything beyond uh, like responding to an email or have you have you actually spoken? What, what, what is the attorney's name again? Um, Chris- uh, her name is Christy Sussman. Yeah. I mean, so did you speak to Christy? Uh, have, you, have you sent her a bouquet of flowers or anything? Like- <laughs> I, uh, when, we, when I first posted the letter, I thought I'm just going to keep my head down because I didn't want them to get mad at me for posting. It doesn't say it's confidential. So I figured... I could probably get away with it, and they couldn't say anything. But I think once the mo- momentum started building, even uh, they had Jack Daniels' uh, publicity people in a lot of interviews that I'm in also, so they're kind of getting both sides of the story. So they know about it, and I think it's so big that they could, you know, they aren't going to complain. And at one point, once I, once there's a there's a Yahoo News video, like a really well produced video, uh, it looked really nice. So it was totally shocking that somebody spent time <laughs> to really put together a nice video for something I did. But uh, they were saying how she's being touted as the nicest lawyer on the in the world, and so I thought, that's so funny. I, I have she she was nothing but cordial to me the entire time, and she was really nice to work with. When as far as you know, being getting threatened with lawsuits can be nice. Um, <laughs> but she was really she was really sweet about everything. And so I wrote her a letter and I an email. I thought and I linked to that story. I thought, have you heard it? Because I, I don't know if she knows what's going on. If she follows the book world or what, but you'd assume. The news had retro. I have no idea. Well, so I said, I mean, "Hey, 
there have to be publicity people. Which I mean, with a brand with a brand that um, large yeah. and that you know, I would imagine. Yeah, they've got to be paying. So I wrote her an email and I said, "Hey, Christy, you're being called the nicest lawyer on earth. Like, congratulations! That, that doesn't happen very often." I was like, "I'm glad that you know, Jack Daniels is getting a lot of goodwill, and you know, I am all, conversely as well." Have a good day. And she sort of wrote me back and laughed about it. And that's well, probably it. I don't think I should maintain a relationship with a lawyer who sent me a cease and desist. You're not. You're not going to just keep emailing her on a daily basis. <laughs> a pr- just keeping keeping her. We'll keep, for lunch. Yeah, just letting her know your Amazon ranking by the hour. <laughs> What's that? I was going to say you just let her know what your Amazon ranking is by on, yeah. on an hourly yeah. basis. Um, but Thanks, no, Thanks, I, you know, Christy. I just had, I just had a, uh, I just had a thought, you know, I think I might have an idea for how you could, uh, perpetuate this. And, and because, you know, like there, you make a good point and, uh, you know, is that in, in that, uh, Jack Daniels is, is doing well by this, you know, too. It's not just you who's getting a good publicity ride. Like this is actually reflecting yeah. really well on them. I so think like, they're getting better publicity, which is, which is very appropriate, I think. Yeah. Well, so it's like, this is a win-win. And so. Here's my idea, okay? And like you can take it or leave it. Okay. Like, and here's what Jack Daniels should do in case they're listening is that your book obviously involves alcohol. It involves the consumption of alcohol. Um, it obviously like tries to uh, pay homage to the Jack Daniels uh, label, the Jack Daniels brand. So like why don't now that you're getting uh, all these book sales and all this stuff is happening and you've got like, you know, hundreds of thousands of web hits and uh, all these different major publications covering it. Why would Jack Daniels, uh, in lieu of paying for the redesign of your book, why would they not sponsor a book tour for you? And then that could, <laughs> with readings that could be held in bars all over the country. That is a man. I'm I'm in. Yeah. If they send me a letter, if they send me that letter, I'm in. <laughs> I'm. Sorry, I think that, I think that should be. That's, that's actually uh, funny because we we don't have an idea of what we're going to do for the new cover completely yet we're working with the same artist who did that that cover matthew rivere but there's talk right now of uh partnering with there's some independent distilleries there's one in portland oregon and we're talking of partnering with them in some way to sort of do it legally but you know to kind of you know to kind of poke fun at ourselves and also to sort of make some whiskey related fun out of all this yeah, we're like, but I don't know what's, just, what's just, final yet. Just try to get like a really nice glossy shot of uh, Christy Sussman. Just have her face on the cover <laughs> of the book. <laughs> there was uh, the artist Matthew Rivera saying we should do some sort of play off of the letter on the cover. And I thought, no, that's, let's not push our luck there. And there's other another joke about dipping it in red wax. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know how many trademarks we can violate? <laughs> yeah, like that. But uh, no. Uh, I guarantee you that this next cover will not violate any trademarks. I think we've uh, we've pushed that envelope as far as it will go. Yeah, you know, you got to count. Yeah, you you got lucky. You got to recognize that it could be. <laughs> yeah, worse. yeah, exactly. Um, I'm like the guy who I'm like the guy who hit it on a slot machine and then just keeps pumping quarters afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> expecting it to happen again. Yeah, yeah, it's got to happen twice, right? Uh, it would be very unlikely. So yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about you. Like, where are you from? Uh, first of all, like, what, what's uh, what part of the, are you from? Kentucky? I'm not. Uh, my wife's from Kentucky. That's how I ended up here in Louisville. I'm from Louisville. Or Louisville Jesus Christ. Um, I'm from Deschler, Ohio, which is a very small town in northern Ohio. Like, like, like two thousand people small. Like near Cleveland, like that area. Uh Toledo, other other side of the state, near Toledo. Okay. Okay. And so, like, just small, kind of like a rural Midwestern upbringing—is that what it was? Very much. I lived on a on a 
I lived in a house that had no neighbors for a mile and a half in every direction. And just cornfields. And so what did you do? Did you have siblings? Did you guys make like, were you guys making your own toys and stuff? Like what was happening? You know, uh, <laughs> we went Amish. We, we, uh, <laughs> we had electric, we had electricity. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> step one, we have electricity. I had an older sister, but she was a uh, five ish years older than me. So we didn't have a lot in common. Yeah. We didn't like playing the same games and watching the same shows very much. So I was, I did have a lot of imaginary friends as a kid and I've, I've looked back now and thinking that that's probably helped my imagination a ton growing up kind of isolated and having to make my own fun. It's something that's, that's uh, occurred to me late at night when I'm sitting up writing and trying to, or trying to avoid writing probably. Well, I think that's something that's cause I grew up in Indiana and Wisconsin and, and uh, there's something oh, about, we're in Indiana, uh, just like, like the suburbs of Indianapolis. Um, oh, right on. but there's something about the, deadness of it especially in the winter and about the boredom uh that sort of comes along with it because you know like i think about my friends who grew up in different parts of the country whether it's like new york city or the mountains of colorado or san francisco or whatever it is but like there's stuff to do you know like in mass <laughs> yeah and i think when you're in the midwest like there isn't as much to do uh and the weather's not as good and all the you know all the other stuff and um but the the upside of that is that it does uh, kind of force your hand when it comes to imagination and sort of creating your own fun. Yeah, it's sort of, I always uh, have likened it to, do you know the band Guided by Voices? Uh, I mean, not well, but yeah, I know, I mean, I know of them. They're from Dayton, Ohio, which is not exactly a rock and roll mecca, and they've always, they always, and they played in their basement for years and sort of made their own albums just for fun, and then they kind of got pretty pretty popular in the 90s, and, and uh, they always likened that sort of similarly. They, like, there's nothing to do in Dayton, there's no rock club. So we just sort of made our own fun and you know, we didn't, we didn't know. And then somebody found out about them and that they're turned out to be a really great band that they just sort of, you know, they were forced to have their own fun and be really creative and weird because they didn't know anything else to do. Well, it's like, the, no, it's, like, it's, like kind of, it's like the flaming lips in Oklahoma city, you know? Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm, uh, I have no qualms about growing up in the country and sort of isolated and, you know, by myself a lot of time. It worked for you. So you were a happy kid? Yeah, I, uh, my, my parents, uh, I'm going back to Ohio this weekend to celebrate my parents' 40th anniversary. So they're, they've been uh, chugging along and yeah, it was a stable childhood. And I, uh, you know, I played sports. I, there's nothing else to do there. So you played, I played sports and I, I was you, what into play? music a lot. What did you play? I was in football. I was a football player. Like what, what position? Which you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at me now. I was a linebacker. I actually, uh, not to brag, but uh, in 1998, I led my team in tackles. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you heard of me. Yeah. No, I think I, I do have like a, a you know faint recollection of that. That was a... <laughs> it might have traveled over to Indiana. I don't it was, know. It was an epic season. <laughs> Um, so were you like, like lifting weights and like, were you like, you know, like, cause like, you know, I, I played, uh, I was the kicker on my high school football team as pathetic as that sounds my senior year. No, I, I also, I was the kicker on the JV team also. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the only, my only experience of being on the team, but like I got swept up in it. Like it was fun to be like just in the uniform and to like run out of the tunnel and like it, you know, Midwestern, yeah. Midwestern high school football is fun. It's just, it's too bad. I was like such a, uh you know, miserable athlete that I couldn't do anything more. Than <laughs> yeah. I mean, I grew, like I said, I grew up in a town of 2000 people. So that's on a Friday night in the fall. That's all there is. There's nothing else to do. So people get really excited about it. And yeah, it was, it was a fun, uh, 
experience to be part of that. And it, you know, looking back, it, it taught me, a, I think a strong work ethic and all that other responsible stuff that you don't really pay attention to when you're a kid. But yeah, I think it probably helped me learn to, you know, suffer through a lot of things that aren't fun. <laughs> it's, it taught you suffering. So, uh, yeah, yeah. so that's, wait, a good, that's, a mid, that's the Midwestern, Mr. Midwestern work ethic right there. Yeah. <laughs> suffer, suffer, <laughs> suffer quietly and enjoy it or try to enjoy it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what about, you, you've suffered, I can tell. We, I have, I've been through, uh, like long gray winters, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. So what about uh, like were you, like were you like a big weightlifting? I mean, if you're playing linebacker, you had to have been. Like, were you were you taking any like uh, steroids or supplements or anything? Tons, tons of steroids. I yeah. still am. Yeah, still are. No, not, <laughs> I was a pretty. I was a kind of the weird kid on the football team. I mean, I was a, like you know, crazy like crazy weird. I got along with everybody fine, but I was playing football, but also you know listening to like Sonic Youth records, which is pretty kind of crazy for. Ohio in the night, like nowhere Ohio, like nobody else that I knew owned a Sonic Youth album. So everybody was listening to Pantera, and they would say, "What, the, what is? What are you listening to? Why are you doing this?" And I was reading books, and none of my friends really read books that they weren't assigned in class. And so I, I kind of had this weird balance to me where I did that football stuff because I enjoyed it, and there was nothing else to do really. And but then I also would, you know, do weird artsy stuff and hang out with the kids that smoked pot and stuff like that. So I. I was able to balance both sides for some strange reason. You were bridging. You were bridging divides. <laughs> God bless me. What <laughs> so, happened to that guy? <laughs> yeah. So, so what about uh, so what about what you were reading? You said you were reading books that weren't assigned. Like, who were the early authors that uh, you know caught your caught your attention? The first book I remember really, really enjoying that I didn't have to read. I went to public school, which is, and I didn't know this at the time until I talked to my wife, who went to private school. I, they never made me read an entire book. I don't know if you went to public school. I had a textbook full of like excerpts of the Red Badge of Courage and you know the Sun Also Rises, but I've never had to read an entire book. I don't think for class. <laughs> I don't know if everybody had that. If public schools had that experience, but I did, and I was fortunate that my mom was a librarian, so I could take out books and keep them as long as I wanted. And so, uh, yeah, I, I remember On the Road really uh, was the first book in high school at some some age, you know, 15, 16, that I really, really liked. But I didn't know why. I just liked the feeling that, you know, it made me feel something that I know, you know, I, no book had ever really made me like yearn to hit the road or do it, yearn to do anything. And so that was the first book that really grabbed me. Do you have a? Did you were you raised in any kind of religion? Like, I, and the reason I ask that is that I feel like there's a certain um, young male. Like, I was I was raised Catholic. Like, th- that book really resonates. There's such a Catholicism like running through Kerouac, and I'm just curious. I never know. thought about that. Yeah, I was raised Catholic. Yeah, I never I never made that connection actually. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, that's a really good point. It re- you know resonates. You know, and it, and it's also I think just a function of the time of life that you read it. Whether you're like a junior or senior in high school or a freshman in college, like. That's the sweet spot. You know, it's one of those books that people tend to gravitate to at that particular time in their life. And um, I don't know. I, I was the same way. I mean, yeah. The book hit me over the head. Yeah, absolutely. Just the, the language. I think that's what's given me. I've always really enjoyed creative language. I think probably from that book, you know. I don't know. I used to read it once a year for many years after that, but I've kind of fallen out of that habit because there's so many other books on my stack that I'm totally ignoring right now. Well, and your your work has you know a distinctly uh, like humorous 
uh, aspect to it. I mean, you're you're almost. I mean, would you consider yourself a humor writer, or is it just like an element? Yeah, I definitely try and I definitely try and make my readers laugh. That's definitely a goal of mine. Because I think if you can, I've always kind of had the theory that if you can make people laugh, then you can sort of sneak in other issues that maybe are more important to you. But you know, if you don't want to, you don't want to crown somebody over the skull talking about corporations and marketing and you know silly things like that so it's better to just make jokes about it yeah well yeah, I hope, yeah. That they, hope that they see something else to it i was thinking about that the other day and like I, I go through these phases where like i'm able to in, ingest um large quantities of like serious bad news and uh lately I've, <laughs> lately i've been able to do that you know like it's i think it's because it's a political season it's an election year and so i'm like trying to like engage with this stuff and the truth yeah. is, the truth is that it's really fucking depressing. Like it's just, <laughs> it, you know, if you're trying to like actually square uh, the circle, is that the way the phrase goes? Square the circle? I don't even know what I think so. I don't know what I'll I'm go with it. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like if I don't you're know act, either. If you're, if you're if you're if you're actually trying to approach it like uh, objectively and say, so what does this mean? What is actually happening? Mm-hmm. And then you go to people who are seriously engaging it from a variety of different perspectives. Like the news tends to be grim. And what I find mm-hmm. myself I find myself thinking is like, okay, so uh, I think like for instance like climate change, uh, something bad is happening here. I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah. But like, how do you talk about something like that in a way that doesn't seem annoying or doesn't seem like so gloom and doom that people just like you know fold in on themselves and shut their ears? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, maybe, you're right. How do you? I mean, if you can find, and so I guess what I like just to bring it back full circle, I think if you can find a way to say those things or to deliver some kind of message that might have all kinds of weight and heaviness to it, but to do it, uh, with a laugh, that's actually really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, there's a lot of days where I want to just hit myself in the head with a hammer. Cause it's, it's, yeah, it's not, I, I found that's the funny, uh, correlation is I think a lot of people think that, um, it's a lot of fun to be a human writer. <laughs> like I just sit in the, my my office with a rubber chicken and giggle, you know. But <laughs> right. but I, but you know I, I I take I you know I stress out a lot and I work really hard to try and make jokes and uh, and make things funny but not you know stupid or something. You know I, I put a lot of thought into humor and it's a lot. Of, I mean it's fun to do, but I'm not sitting down there with a giant grin on my face. Well, I mean you know it, it's it's fun to get it right, but the thing about it and, and maybe you have a different experience, but like I do a little bit of this too, and like you know you sweat over it, and what's what makes you really sweat is when you when you write something one day and you think it's funny and then you you take it out of the drawer the next day or you open it up on your computer screen and you read it and it's just a piece of shit and you're like, what was I thinking? Oh yeah. Like that's terrifying. Oh yeah. It's like, it's like when you write down a dream in the middle of the night and you look at the next day and you're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Right. Or, 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 or like, you know, like, uh, back in my, my younger days, you know, you get really stoned and then you write down, you know, you're writing all these great, <laughs> you're writing all these great epiphanies down on a bar napkin and then you wake up the next day and it's like, you know, chicken monkey or whatever it is and it doesn't <laughs> yeah it doesn't work yeah definitely well. there i do like i do a lot of drafting i guess that's how i kind of work out those kinks I, this book i probably did at least 20 or 25 drafts of it so i think if you keep reading it over and over and over again the stuff that sticks is the stuff that's good and then you get brave enough to cut out the stuff that's shitty after a while right and, and what a relief that is like to realize that like you know something isn't right yeah i love i love cutting shit out of my books like it's, it's hard to do but man it feels good when you feel like you've put something out and it's, you've made it better because you've eliminated something 
that's a really that's one of the more rewarding feelings of sitting down in a dark room and typing for hours on end. Yeah, well, and it just feels there's a cleanness to it, and there's a like I'm a big believer in like easy reading is hard writing, you know, and like your books. Yeah. Um, you know, you have like a kind of an effortless conversational style, and like I, I've done this long enough to know that that's not uh, that doesn't happen easily. You know, it's not it, it tricks. Yeah. It might, might trick you into thinking that it. You know, the reader uh, might look at it and be like, "Oh, this guy's just like talking into a dictaphone," but you know, like, <laughs> clearly not the case. Yeah, that's that's definitely. Yeah, I I put a lot of effort and work into making it seem that way for sure. But yeah, that's the goal is to make it smooth and hopefully palatable. There's, I'm paraphrasing, but there's like an E.L. Doctor quote where he's like, goal was to make a book, to write books that could be appreciated by like professors and mechanics. You know, he, and his books, I think accomplish that. They say big things, but they're super readable. Right. Right. Well, and I always uh, like that uh, attitude. Yeah, no, I, I think that like uh, saying complicated things in complicated ways is not necessarily the goal or it shouldn't be, you know, yeah. it shouldn't, I, I mean, I don't know. Like I've had this conversation. Some people can do it well, you yeah, know, but not me. I was just going to say like, you know, there are, I think there is a place actually for like academic writing or for like super brainy writers who are writing to other super brainy people. But like, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think I'm just a, not that super brainy and B more of a populist instinctively. You know what I'm saying? Like I want to, <laughs> I would, I would want to be communicating with as many people as possible. I'd also like to say something intelligent, uh, you know, but it, I, I think that, I think that there's a way, like I used to, uh, when I was teaching creative writing, I would draw a building on, uh, the whiteboard or whatever. Like I draw a skyscraper and I would say that like some, you know, uh, books are accessible on every floor. Do you know what I'm saying? Some books are only accessible at the oh, top floor. Yeah. That's sort of how I've always like thought of it, like or analogized it, is that uh, you know trying to write a book, like Doctor O was saying, you know, trying to write a book that uh, you can enter on the ground floor or enter on the top floor, and it's equally, uh, or it's like you know maybe not equally satisfying, but it's satisfying nevertheless. Deep shit, Brad Listy. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, you, like at what point? So like on the road, sort of like lit your mind on fire when you were in high school. Yeah, you were starting to like come into your artistic self even as you were uh setting tackling records uh, as a line as a <laughs> as a fierce as a vicious linebacker um god you have heard about me okay yeah yeah, yeah. what was your what was your, <laughs> what was your high school team what was the name of the school and the, the mascot we were the patrick henry patriots okay god, so god bless us yes <laughs> as you were uh crushing people on behalf of the patriots like when did you uh when did you know that you were going to write was it when was it then did you sort of like set that in your no mind? Not at all. Probably, I mean, not that there's a late or an early time to learn this. I don't really believe people who say they were been writing since they were 10 and they knew they wanted to be a novelist. Or I was reading Joyce in junior high. But whenever I read that from somebody, I never believe that. You know? Like, it just seems, unless you were one of those guys, then I totally believe it. <laughs> no, no, I was not. I was not either. I, I was a kid. I mean, that's what I always say is that, like, I just, uh, yeah, I was not. I was doing dumb shit. I was lighting stuff on fire. Right. Uh, exactly. I was, I think we had. But, a um, yeah, I knew I liked weird stuff and I liked artsy stuff, but I couldn't quite, I didn't, I wasn't in touch with myself, you know, to know how I wanted to, what I wanted to do at that age. I always thought I wanted to play music, but then I was I got in bands later in my life, and I realized I was terrible at music. Um, I, uh, I went to college in Dayton, Ohio. Did you go to UD? Did, did you go to UD? Yeah, I went to UD. Went so, to UD. So did my, so did my little sister. Oh, no way. When did she graduate? She would have graduated in, goodness, 19, or like 2001. You guys were probably there at the same ah. time. 
I graduated in 2002, yeah. So we'll you, talk about that later. Yeah. I just got actually an invitation from the UD Law School to come talk about trademark infringement. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, I'm going. I'm excited. It's so bizarre that I can't. <laughs> I love. I live for weird shit like this that I can't pass up. Of course, yeah. No, I mean, return to your alma mater like uh, in triumph. Yeah, I told I told the guy who contacted me. I was like, I don't know anything about law. Is that okay? He's like, Oh, I have a lawyer there who can answer any of the students' questions that you might not be able to handle. And it's like, Why am I there? Why do you want me? But I'll go. It's a free. I heard there's a free lunch, so I'm going. Patrick, I hate to break this to you, but it's a trap, dude. There's going to be like Jack Daniels attorneys and, and police officers there. <laughs> the end game the, for Jack Daniels. Brilliant. You'll be frog marched off campus. <laughs> But uh, before I was getting asked back to the law school, I, uh, I was a communications public relations major. I didn't take any creative writing classes or in- that any more English classes than were, you know, required of me. I took a Stephen King on film class. That was one of the more adventurous classes I took. But uh, what is that? I didn't start. I wrote. We'd watch Stephen King films and then watch and read the books and then we'd compare them. It's <laughs> called a senior year class when you drink too much right, right. <laughs> um but I, I i the best class i ever took i just got uh i just uh was interviewed by my all like the alumni magazine and she's like oh what what was a teacher or a class that was or you know whatever class that really helped you write as a novelist and i was like none of them <laughs> but uh i i took a freelance uh freelance writing class that it turned out to be like, the best thing i ever did it, it got me writing and i realized i liked writing about music and so I started interning for the local weekly doing music writing. And I had a really great editor named Sarah Farr who uh, encouraged me just to write whatever the hell I wanted and not to really worry. And that really freed me up. Because music writing, you can be, it's not so journalistic, it's not so straight and narrow. You can be, you know, you can use sort of fun words and, you know, play around with language a lot to describe music. So I really fell into that for a long time. Who were some? Did you have music writers that you were looking up to? Like, were you like a you know reading like the the Lester Bangs and the Grail Marcuses and stuff like that, or was it? I started doing that. Yeah, I started reading that after I got into music writing. I just sort of like music writing, and then I, I read Lester Bangs and yeah, some Grail Marcus and things like that. It's um, not. It's not an easy. Nothing thing. really sticks out in my head. It, it's not. It's not an easy thing to write about music. You know, like writing about the you know songs. It, you know, it's very difficult because. Yeah. At some point, you just have to hear the song. You know, <laughs> like. Um, yeah, I kind of gravitated towards how the music always felt. I, I would not focus so much on like the technicality because I don't understand music like that. I can't read music, and I don't really know a lot about music, but I know how it makes me feel, and I always try to convey that. And so I always thought that was, a, a, you know, you could kind of be a little more flowery and wordy, and uh, get it across that way. I was always happy when I could do that. Well, and then what about uh, what, what about the transition into an actual literary pursuit? Like, at what point did you say to yourself, "I want to try to write fiction" or "I want to try to write uh, a book"? I got, I got, I, I moved after college. I moved around the West Coast a lot. I lived in Tucson. My wife and I did, and then we moved up to Portland, Oregon, for about five years. And uh, I got fired from a children's museum <laughs> from about two thousand three or two thousand four, and uh, I was on unemployment and. Uh, I just was getting sick of music writing. I was freelancing for the Willamette, for the Willamette Week up there in Portland, writing music, and uh, I just got kind of tired of it because you felt like you couldn't write about a band unless they were coming to town and releasing an album. You couldn't, you know, it was you're just sort of a, a publicity machine at that point. And I kind of started realizing that, and it kind of soured me on it. 
I say this as people are writing about my book because it's out in the news. <laughs> right. right. A fucking hypocrite. <laughs> now, now you are a publicity machine. You're not a part of it. Yeah, I know. But uh, I don't know. Like, I was unemployed, and I just, like, it's, uh, you know, uh, Portland is a pretty cool literary scene. I'd go to Powell's, and I was reading books, and, you know, I would go to hear people read. But I just was home one day, you know, instead of watching TV, I just started writing, like, a really bad short stories. And, I liked it. You know, I, I could tell they were kind of bad, but I really enjoyed it. And so I slowly stopped writing music and doing more, um, you know, literary, uh, trying to write fiction kind of stuff. And eventually I just sort of, you know, it started taking over my life and that's all I wanted to do. So I was miserable at office jobs and stuff until I could totally, totally quit. So you then you started like submitting to, to online journals and print journals and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I, I got a few short stories published, not a ton. But yeah, I would submit to online journals. I'd try and get an agent. I'd try and get publishers interested. And you know, I was just I was just wasn't ready yet. But it was really helpful to kind of learn how the business works and research that kind of stuff. Well, and then what um, about, what I, about? I wrote this book six years ago, actually. So it was part of that process, actually, because oh. it wasn't. It was kind of raw and not good. And it just took me that many years to kind of pare it down and make it better. So, wait, did you finish what we're what what is now selling uh, on Amazon? Did you finish? Uh, that book six years ago, or did you start it six years ago and then finish it? I wrote the first draft in like a month. So it had like a beginning, middle, and an end, you know, after the first draft. But then, I, like I said, I did like 25 drafts after that. So over the course, probably over the course of like two years, I did the bulk of the work. And it just wasn't there yet. It wasn't, I, had an, I actually had an agent magically. I, got, I did one of these, I went to one of these writers' conferences at like an airport Sheridan. And <laughs> some agent like picked me up that had never sold a book before, and she, you know, didn't sell it obviously. But the, if you go to my website, I actually have this posted too. I, I for some reason, I'm, I like posting weird letters I get from people. I got a rejection letter from uh, Viking where they claimed the novel was nauseating. <laughs> I, I've loved that. I've, that's been like the best. I, I love hate mail. Like whenever, don't please people don't hate mail me, but. uh when I was a music critic, I would save every piece of hate mail I got. Like for something, something about that I think is so interesting because you—that's a really strong reaction that you're creating in someone. So I don't know why I've always been thrilled when somebody <laughs> like hates what I do. <laughs> it is. The it means they read it and they interpreted it, and you know that's what came out. Yeah, it's the and it fuels you. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little. Yeah, you know, I was because I, I believed in it. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was nauseating. I don't know. There's a lot of meth use and binge drinking and. Uh, overeating, which I guess was nauseating, but I thought it was done in done in humor. So how how are you working? Like you know, you're working on this book. You said it sort of consumed you and took over your life. Like, what was your work schedule like? Uh, when I was in Portland, when I was still working on this book, I worked at a uh, after after I got off unemployment, <laughs> I, uh, I worked at a life insurance company, proofreading life insurance documents. So you can imagine how exciting that was. Oh my God. And uh, I would just, uh, I was, I was horrible. I was bad at that job because I didn't want to be there, and I knew I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't want to be an insurance dude. So basically, what I would do is like print off interviews and, uh, you know, uh, short stories or something like that, that I wanted to read. So I would like, print off a twenty-page like Don DeLillo interview from you know the Paris Review or something, and I would print it off discreetly and then put it in a file folder. And like open the file folder and really study it, so it looked like I was doing work and uh, <laughs> and uh, copy editing uh, insurance documents that I was reading about, you know, uh, how Don DeLillo wrote Underworld or something. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I used to do that too. Like you'd have, like, it's like the uh, George Costanza thing where you just look angry when you're at work. That always, <laughs> yeah, you know, just look like you're. Pissed um, but off. then, <laughs> but then we moved to. We decided to. Um, I, I that's what it was. After Portland, we decided I wanted to go try and get an MFA because it just felt like that was the next thing to do. So I applied to ten MFA schools using broken piano for president as my manuscript uh, submission, and I got rejected from eight and waitlisted at two. And none of them accepted me in the end. So we just kind of thought, well, what the hell next? So we ended up moving back to my wife's hometown of Louisville, which turned out to be like like my own personal MFA because it's so freaking cheap to live here that I didn't have to get an office job. I just like picked up some freelance work uh, writing and I stayed home all day long. So I would do a little bit of freelancing and then writing and reading and working really, really hard on, uh, you know, the the craft of writing or something. I guess I hate the word craft of writing. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you can strike that from the record. Yeah, if you can go back and edit that out and put something more intelligent in, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> so what about, like, when you say cost of living in Louisville, like, what are we talking for rent? Can you ballpark it? Um, well, I mean, my wife and I, we were so surprised. We, well, we, we banked a bunch of money thinking I was going to go to get an MFA that I was somehow was, you know, smart enough to get into college, which we made a mistake. So we, uh, we banked a bunch of money cause I, my insurance job paid a lot, even though it was miserable and, uh, I didn't get in. So we had enough for like a down payment on a, on a home here in Louisville. So we bought a house and our mortgage is cheaper than any rent I ever paid in, in Portland. Wow. And do you like, so like, do you like... Off, a, a few hundred dollars a month is basically what our mortgage is. I mean, it's cheap here. Yeah. And my wife, God bless her, has a real job and can, you know, support us and have insurance and stuff like that right 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 so wow so yeah because like my uh my sister lives in indiana the cost of living is just uh, you know i live in los angeles which is the opposite so uh, <laughs> yeah, I bet. do you like living in uh louisville or louisville yeah i really i really come to yeah louisville you know you're you're close when you're when you're here in indiana yeah uh yeah I, I've, I've really grown to like it a lot here it's uh it's uh, what i tell all my friends from portland who are like why the hell did you ever move is that it feels a lot like a smaller Portland. Like you have to work a little harder to find the weird people and the interesting creative people, but they're here too. And they're doing neat stuff and there's, you know, there's hip stuff to do and check out. But, uh, I think there's a hard uh, to do. Uh, my, my experience is that, uh, there are like, I, people are, cr- there's some crazy people from Kentucky. Uh, and I, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I mean, good crazy, you know what I'm saying? Like there's some very interesting, uh, f- folks that I've met through the years, like I remember, like guys that went to college at uh, Indiana University with friends of mine, and like I don't know what it was, but like every time I'd meet someone from someone from Kentucky, uh, they just like stood out in my mind. And then likewise, I always <laughs> felt like uh, Kansas City, pr- and maybe the state of Kansas in general, but huh. Kansas also produced uh, good people and good like good crazy <laughs> people. I don't know if that's just my experience. There's a lot of bourbon drinking here. That probably would explain a lot of it. People are super proud of Kentucky being the state that makes bourbon. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's just a thing. I mean, everybody just drinks bourbon. Like, my, my wife's family kind of introduced me to it. Like, every event, every family gathering or dinner, we we, we have bourbon. It's right. just, you know, it's there. It's part of life. It's really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice thing. And then, like, I that's, um, that, that brings to mind, like, I remember seeing two guys from Kentucky when I was in college, like, getting drunk and then like wrestling and then like actually getting to the point where they're like throwing punches. And it was like, <laughs> I remember being like, Oh my God, you know? And then like, but the next day it was like, they, they were laughing about it. It, it was just sort of like par, <laughs> par for the course. 
Uh, I, I thankfully haven't found those guys here. But um, what the hell was I going to tell you next? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Louisville's cool. I joined an com- improv comedy group, which I never would have done. And I, I love that. That's been really productive for me. How for, so? Like, not be embarrassed to, like, read in public. Oh, right, Like, right. being up on stage and bombing while you're doing an improv set, like, is, like, the best training in the world for bombing while you're reading and not getting rattled. Like, I've become such a better reader when I, when I do, like, you know, book reading set. Through, through doing uh, improv. So is this something that you do strictly for fun and like just to kind of exercise a, like a creative muscle uh, or is it something that you think like you, like do you want to be a comedic performer? Oh no, I'll never, I have no dream of uh, making a living from improvising. I'm not that, I'm not that good at it, but I enjoy doing it. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just something I do. I had, a, I just was being a smart ass at a party once and one guy's like, hey, I'm in an improv group. You should join. I thought I've never done that before, and that's something I would not do. But I just moved to Louisville, and I didn't know anybody, so I thought that might be a good way to meet people. Right. So I just did it, and and I've loved it. It's it's really helps me like think about character relationships when I'm writing. It's uh, it's turned out to be more beneficial than I ever thought it would be. No, that makes sense. You know, I feel like sometimes you know, or not even sometimes. I feel like all the time. Uh, anytime you're doing something creative, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship with whatever your primary mode might be. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're, yeah, absolutely. If you're writing fiction or you're writing nonfiction and then you go and you, uh, take a painting class, it's going to inform it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I dabbled with photography for a little while badly also. And I can see, yeah, the correlation of, you know, a setting and a, and a photograph and a setting when you're writing it and the things you think about with each one. Well, and so then what about uh, the response to all of this, uh, you know, excitement from your family and from friends? Like, I mean, obviously your wife must be enjoying this, like watching all this happen. Your parents um, have, have probably been keeping up with it, I take it. Yeah, yeah, my, my mom's a librarian, so that's kind of, I think it's kind of neat for her. Um, yeah, my family, my grandma, my 93-year-old grandma, that's probably the most psyched, which I never would have saw coming. She... She has bad eyesight, so she has to read on a nook that's like expanded to just humongous, uh, you know, proportions. <laughs> it's like two, wor- she, two she was, words uh, per screen. Yeah, yeah. I've always been embarrassed to show my grandma my work because my first book was called "Sex Dungeon for Sale," <laughs> <laughs> and she's such a nice, nice lady. And she's like, "Oh, Pat has a book. I want to read it." And I thought, "God, no! Don't." Sh-. My mom did. She, my mom had to print off like photocopies. For the book, and then because it wasn't in it wasn't in electronic form, photocopy it, and then like blimp up the photocopy so she could read it. And I was like, "Oh my god, mom, grandma's <laughs> gonna disown me." But you know, she's she's hip. You never know. She's right? hip, ninety-three year old. She's down. It's easy to uh, it's easy to underestimate. You know, like uh, <laughs> grandma can grandma but, uh, can handle uh, it. She's she's been around the block. Yeah, apparently. I don't want to know any more about that. But yeah, apparently. <laughs> right. But the thing that's been really good, which it's stressful, is uh, I'm also a stay-at-home dad. And uh, so every time my editor calls me and is like, oh, my God, your book is, you know, the twenty, the top 25 of Amazon now. They're, I turn around and my teething son is, you know, screaming because he needs, you know, ice in his mouth or something like that. You know, so it totally keeps you from becoming a total douchebag, I think. <laughs> yeah, it has like an it has a leveling effect, you know, like like you th- yeah yeah you think you're getting fancy and then like your kid pukes on you, you know, like it's just a, it has a nice way. <laughs> yeah, like th- this morning I got off the phone with uh, doing like morning weekend edition with NPR, which is just humongous, enormous, and like a dream for anybody. 
And as soon as I, my mother-in-law was kind enough to babysit, well, I went and found a quiet place to talk. And as soon as I walk in the door, she's like, here you go. He's, he's funny. Probably need to feed him. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, okay, well, we're, we're proud of you. And I take care of your kid and make sure he doesn't die. Yeah. And so, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good. I, I like that. I'm, I'm very happy that that's the way things are going. It's stressful as all hell, but, uh, you know, it's good in the, in the long run. Well, I mean, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's like you, you, you have to kind of take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves. And, um, like who knows what happens, you know, uh, once you're on NPR, you know, pretty soon you might be on like, uh, you know, good morning America or something. Who knows? <laughs> we were, we're pushing my, uh, editor and I are pushing really hard on Twitter to try and get Stephen Colbert to at least do a piece about it. But we haven't had any response from Stephen Colbert. I mean, once, once unbelievable things like the New York Times and the New Yorker and stuff start popping up, you start you change your whole thinking. You're like, well, shit, anything's possible. Why not? Right, right. You know? so, so we just started swinging for the fences, and then we, Stephen Colbert has ignored us. But I think he would like it if he uh, if he's listening. So wait, now, so how are you? Approach- you're just tweeting at him. Is that how you're approaching him? Or- yeah, basically, whenever like a big news story comes in, like um, what was it the other day? Oh, I think I said. Uh, the New York Times wrote a little piece about it in their arts beat section. And so I tweeted Stephen Colbert. I said, Stephen, you let some half-rate, some cut-rate paper like the New York Times scoop you on this story? <laughs> so I'm trying to, like, you know, kind of goad him a little bit, but he's not responding. You wonder if he even looks at his own Twitter. I bet you they do, though. But, you know, I wonder that, too. I tried this earlier this year just because I, I was amusing myself. I tried uh, – I wanted to get Mitt Romney to, to tweet me back. <laughs> so I wrote him about 75 tweets, just random shit, like – What's your favorite Soundgarden song? It's just, just, to see, just to see if he would respond to anything, and yeah, I never got a response. So I'm convinced, he, yeah, yeah, big people probably don't even touch their Twitter accounts. I'm glad to hear you say that because I have like such a strong. Uh, in fact, I almost want to. I mean, if I had the time, this is the issue with me is that I'm just so you know I've got so many of these different things going on. But I, I want to create a Twitter account that I use exclusively to talk at public figures. Um, and, and I sort of want to do it anonymously, but like, I do have that urge. Like, wouldn't it be funny to just harass Sarah Palin, you know, even though she'll probably just block me or like whoever it might be, you know? Yeah. Uh, and just like, just ask inane questions, not even be like super mean spirited, but just like to entertain myself, you know? Like, yeah. That's what most of my questions were like, were just inane and half of them just music related in ways that it's comical to me that Mitt Romney would never know. Like what's his, what's. What's a good Sun Ra album? You know, he doesn't know who Sun Ra is. You know, but I just want one of I just want maybe one of his interns to you know be like uh, you know, the first one. Just somebody write me back just to amuse me. I I would love that. But there is typically they're too smart for that. Well, they're too, yeah. I don't even know if smart's the word, but like there's there there's nothing typically. <laughs> yeah, I, I shouldn't use that with the Romney campaign. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I mean, but no, but anybody. It's like it's like. Uh, you know, I feel like the politicians in general are so controlled that like there's nothing more boring than a politician's Twitter account, unless it's Anthony Weiner, in which case uh, <laughs> things get interesting or whatever. Yeah, I think maybe they all learned from that guy and uh, <laughs> yeah, sort of shade away. That's an unbelievable. That was unbelievable that he did that. But uh, so, what's next for you? I mean, aside from trying to kind of like ride this wave as far as, as it'll take you, like yeah, you, I'm just I'm gonna beat the horse until it's dead for sure. And then what about other work? Are you working on any other books or anything? Yeah, I mean, before all this stuff happened, I was, uh, I was, I have a deadline to get my next novel done uh, by early 2013, so I've already been deep into that. I'd already basically 
scaled back my publicity, my pub, because Lazy Fascist Press doesn't have a marketing department. We're just that small. So I was the marketing guy for my book. So, you know, you can imagine uh, raising, being a stay-at-home dad, raising my kid, trying to be a cre- write creative stuff and do some freelance writing. I had to, I just finally started scaling back on trying to get reviews and stuff for the book. Exactly. And I'd been concentrating more on the next book. Which is? Been <laughs> uh, so the, next, the next book, next book, like I said, is going to be the, uh, Nonfiction uh, collection uh, called, you know, whatever I said. I'm already forgetting. It's uh, everything was great until it sucked. But this next book is um, it's a novel about a. Uh, it's going to be about a, a, a widower who has a six-year-old son, and he has a fear of dying now that his wife has passed away. And he, it simultaneously realizes that only assholes get ahead in life. So he is convinced he wants to teach his son to be a total asshole before he dies. And so his son will be successful when he's gone. <laughs> that's, the, that's the that's the that's the uh, nuts and bolts of that book. Does it have a title? Uh, we're we're batting a couple different ones around. I don't know. It's probably either expletive deleted or just asshole. I don't know if I could get away with calling a book asshole. <laughs> I don't know who's like whose asshole are you going to copyright infringe upon. I mean, you know. <laughs> I don't know the porn industry that well, but there probably is a copyrighted <laughs> asshole out there. Right. You'll be the, the lawyers for Jenna Jameson will be calling you. <laughs> um, well, on, on that note, Patrick, I'm, uh, I'm I'm so glad I got a chance to talk with you, especially like you know to time it, uh, you know, in in conjunction with all that's been happening for you. It's it's fun to see. Uh, it's always fun to see an independent press and an, uh, an indie author get uh, this kind of ride. So congratulations to you, and uh, best of luck with it. I, I look forward to seeing it, um, you know, hopefully on the New York Times list this weekend. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Thank you. Uh, this is a, you know, I've, I've wanted to be on your show for a long time. I actually used to, I was telling you this earlier, I used to feed my, when my son was an infant, I used to feed him to uh, podcasts of Brad Listy. So he knows who you are, and now he'll... <laughs> be able to hear me and you talking, which will totally blow his mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your son's name? Walter. What, Walter, hello. This is Brad Listy. <laughs> um, you just made his day. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, uh, great, great talking with you and best of luck. Thanks, Brad. Have a good day. Okay, folks, there you have it. That is it. That is the program. That is my conversation with Patrick Wensink. Go get his book. It's called Broken Piano for President. You can find him on the web at patrickwensink.com. He's on the Twitter, at Patrick Wensink, and he's also on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. You can read my tweets. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you'd like to email me, and write me some kind of message. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget to check out thenervousbreakdown.com. That is my online culture magazine and literary blog slash community. It is out there. It is waiting for you at thenervousbreakdown.com. And hey, did you know that you can subscribe to this program for free at iTunes? You're aware of that, correct? It's free, and uh, it's also available for free at Stitcher, today's sponsor. So if you're a Stitcher person, uh, go go uh, get the show at Stitcher. It's a good thing to do. Okay, I think that's it. Uh, I think right now I'm going to go outside. I'm feeling like I should do that. I feel, I'm feeling uh, like I've been sitting down too long. I've been sitting down all day in my office, and I'm worried uh, that this is having uh, deleterious, is that the word, negative 
effects on my health. Please remember that Norman Mailer's sixth wife was the same age as his oldest daughter and that Schopenhauer liked to play the flute recreationally. Uh, Thank you once again for listening. I will be back soon with another program. You know the drill. Uh, Right now, I'm going to step away from the microphone. I'm going to step outside. The sun is sinking rapidly towards the Pacific Ocean. It's going to be dark soon, so I'm going to go. I'm going to move with purpose in a westerly direction on the Earth's surface while there is still time. (laughs) 